Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earle. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. I'm Amanda Earle, and this is episode 68. Today on the show, I have with me Clara Duplessis. Hi, Clara. Hey, Amanda. Thanks for having me here again. Oh, thanks for coming back. You were on the show for the first season back in, uh, and and it was the 2017, it was a two-parter we did then. So that was an interesting... We just couldn't stop talking, I think. Couldn't stop talking. That's my favorite kind of, uh, that's in the way my favorite kind. I I like all the different ways in which I I connect with people on this show, but uh, I do like not, like having too many things to talk about. I think it's my favorite. We might have that problem again today, I think. (laughs) We'll see, we'll see. So I want to start just by uh, reading the bio and also talking about the uh, new collection. So Clara Duplessis is a poet, critic, and literary curator. Her debut collection of multilingual long poems, Eke, won the 2019 Pat Lowther Memorial Award, was shortlisted for the Gerald Lampert Memorial Award, and garnered much critical acclaim. She lives in Montreal and Cape Town. In her second collection of poetry, Hell Light Flesh, Clara Duplessis returns with a Dante-esque trilogy on family, punishment, and the ferocity and brilliance of creation. Hell Light Flesh drops the reader into a narrative claustrophobically entwined in unquestioned systemic violence where art and art criticism act as a consistent glimmer of hope. Over and over, the poem lends itself to allegory and yields to layers of interpretation. Hell Light Flesh is mandatory reading for devotees of the long poem and fans of Duplessis' thrilling brand of essayist, essayistic poetry alike. And that's from, that's from the back of the book. I did not invent that myself. So, so and that I will link to also to the, uh, to the book as well. So, uh, so it's, a, it's, it's, a, the design is really gorgeous as well. I wanted to say it's, it's, it's really well done. You know? Thank you. Yeah. I really like the front cover so much. Um, it was designed by Erica Smith. Um, yeah, it's a sound wave actually. It's a sound wave form of the word hell. Um, said out loud and um so so we were actually kind of toying with the idea of having like a uh you know three sound waves so hell light and flesh right. like the three sound waves above the words um but it just seemed a little bit too busy in the end on the front cover so we went with like the single word no it's it's beautiful that's good so i I've, i have a, a few questions here for you obviously so i thought i would just ju- jump in so a manuscript entitled Hell Light Flesh was shortlisted for the Metatron Prize in 2015. But this is, as, as I learned when we first started to talk about it, this isn't the same manuscript as the book just published. Can you talk about the title and its history? Yeah, that's a great title. A uh, great question. It's a great title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's actually funny. I was doing the Palimpsest Press uh, launch for Hell Light Flesh just last night and someone asked a similar question. So, and then, and then I actually kind of, um, my internet froze and apparently my question wasn't answered. Um, so here's a second chance to, to discuss it. But yeah, um, the title Halite Flesh has a really long history because um, I actually wrote a poem of kind of found words when I was nine. Um, and that is, <laughs> The, the poem on the first page of this book, yeah. um, on page uh, seven, uh, I was kind of thinking maybe I should just read it real quick. It's very Good. short. Good. It, I was going to ask you about that actually too. Great. <laughs> yeah. So the, this poem, which I wrote when I was nine, reads as follows. Hell, light flesh, turquoise aquamarine, lavender, ultramarin, ultramarine, Soft green, emerald green, crap like rosa, pink, matter lake, rose. And um, so yeah, it was it was as I said, it was it was a poem that um, was from found words um, that I found around the house, and um, I hand wrote it. And my father actually found the handwritten note and took it to work and typed it up. Wow. And, brought it back for me and um, it was very exciting <laughs> at the time. And um, 
so I kind of, you know, I have this record of this poem from, from way back. And I, the, the title Hell Light Flesh was just such a, such an evocative title, those three words. Um, I think they really just push and pull in so many different directions, both in terms of, you know, the, the, the entity Hell Light Flesh is one concept or one title, but also in, this, in their separateness. Um, and even in their, in various combinations, like I think, Light flesh, for example, is, is another very evocative um, subsection that's like embedded into the into the triptych of words. Um, but yeah, so I kind of wanted to use this title later in life, I guess. <laughs> and um, so I imposed this title on a manuscript, uh, which was then shortlisted for the Metatron Prize, as, as you noticed. Um, I forget exactly when that was, was 2015, um, you say. That's what but that manuscript was a totally different piece of work. It was not... <laughs> you know, anything to do with, with a book that's now been published. In fact, it's an early manuscript, which included some of the work that was then excerpted and re and re um, recombined into the chat book, which was wax lyrical. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's from that era um, of work, but I think because I kind of imposed the title onto that manuscript after the fact, when I was kind of like searching for, for, a, for a title for the work, it just never felt accurate to me. And I realized that if I wanted to use the title um, that had so much breadth for me in, in a personal way, but also um, and in, in, the, in what the title could evoke, I would have to write something specifically for the title. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so I think maybe like the starting point of this book was the title. And, and that title kind of dictated even the form of the book in terms of it being um, having three parts. That, that's great. That's great. You know, it often, it, it has happened to me too, that I've come up with a title before I've come up with the work and I've had to write the work to go with the title. <laughs> so I, I it's, it's fine that happens. I actually find titles really difficult. And so I think having started with a title on this one was, was yeah. it was novel for me. Like I, I've never done that before. It was great. Well, all, so far, all the titles that I've, I've heard of your work, uh, have all been great titles so there you go I haven't, thank you that's I haven't, I haven't heard any really i don't know it's hard for me to think of a title that really I, I i that would be an interesting conversation actually but maybe not a very fair one but maybe talking to writers about some of their titles and and the ones that are left on the cutting room floor right like terrible titles terrible titles that would be an interesting show we could do a feature on that it'd be fun uh, yeah, well, so I guess one of the things about that found poem is that, that they said, I thought that what I got the impression of from reading that poem was that that was maybe a paint color. Yeah, so, they are pretty much paint colors. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's why. Well, you know, you always uh, you have me at color, right? I'm so I'm so interested in in anything to do with color. So I um, right away as soon as I read that, I was quite excited because it just mm -hmm. I'm I'm really interested in it, and that's good. An interesting thing, sorry, just to to mm -hmm. end our conversation, but an interesting point that that Erin Moray actually made when I was talking to her about about this book, and I said something like, you know, this book is written in English; it's a monolingual book, um, which is something that I've argued against for much my, you know, in my in my own head too. But you know, I, I made that point, and she said, no, it's not true because look at that first poem, yeah. you know, because the words are translated right it's like um right away yeah. yeah like it's 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 german i think and, yeah. and, and english but there it immediately as like a strange little you know first fragment of the book there is this kind of destabilization of of what monolingualism um of the monolingualism of the rest of the book that's right that's right that makes sense that's good she makes she raises she makes a good point so, like uh, Kinesia Lubrin, Sandra Ridley, and me, and a lot of a few a number of other people, you work in long poem form. In this case, three long poems. Do you ever write one-off poems, and do you feel as if they are just in suspended animation until forming into something longer? Uh, well, first of all, congratulations on your new long poem, oh. <laughs> which I have here, uh, "Sessions from the Dreamhouse Aria." Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm still in the process of reading it, but I really enjoyed the first pages and the. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So congratulations on that one. Um, yeah, I um, I do write shorter poems, but they usually tend to be kind of in between uh, more sustained projects. Yeah. Um, and 
yeah and I feel like a lot of like I, I often kind of send them to journals like in between writing writing a book but many of them just never really get published or nothing really ever happens to them because I don't tend to I don't write incrementally from the short poem into a longer work like they're either something short which um, just happens to be, you know, a thought or a moment or based on an image or something that, that came out uh, that, that I felt the need to write, you know, in a, in a moment, um, or, you know, I'm already dedicated to a certain project um, that is more expansive. There's, I mean, obviously the short poem has such a long tradition and, um, and also, you know, it's a wonderful form and I, and I love reading the lyrical poem and, and the page long poem and, and so on. But personally, I, I do tend to find it dissatisfying sometimes um, to work in a short poem. And I have some theories of why that's the case. Oh, <laughs> elaborate because I, I have a real, I have this same thing. I, 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 I do write the occasional short poem, but mostly they, what ends up happening to me is either it, it, I end up having more that I want to write about whatever it is that that poem has in it or I just ends up. I, I sometimes I, I have a section either called in my in my file folders every year called either randomage or uh, randomage or uh, misfits. And right. sometimes I'll go back and I'll look at those because they're like individual poems, and I'll say, oh, uh, maybe I'll submit that somewhere because I can't with long poems. It's really hard to extract something to submit to a journal or something. It's so hard, and there are so few journals that actually accept are willing to give you that kind of page count, right? Like. Exactly. And pages or whatever you would need to, to publish a substantial chunk. Yeah. So what's your, what's your theory about uh, the, we were just talking about the, the short, long poem, they're working in the long poem format. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was interested that you brought up Kinesia Lubrin um, in your question because I was, I heard her talk recently and she was asked some a similar kind of question about the long poem. And her new book, obviously, is also um, a long poem, The, Dis the Disgraphist. Yeah. Um, and she said that she sees herself as a maximalist poet. She used the word maximalist. Yeah, I've heard her say that before. This, yeah. is my, this is my thing too. Yes, good. Maximalism. But <laughs> this is like the funny part. So she was saying that, you know, she sees herself as a maximalist poet, which is why she, you know, needs the space. I, I guess that's part of the argument, right? That she, um, you know, keeps, you know, it's the project is so large that she needs the space. And I was kind of thinking that I think in contrast, I'm a minimalist poet. Yeah. Um, and that's why I need the space. Kinesa's work, which I love, is very large in scope, so much so that sometimes when I'm reading it, it feels like um, I'm only able to see fragments that kind of come out of the whole of the whole. But right. then the whole the whole is present and I see fragments. I, I am able to digest fragments. And I think the opposite is a similar, like a, a similar but opposite um, gesture in 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 how I flesh anyway, which is that I withhold a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of restraint. And I, the fragments that are given um, are that is what is given. <laughs> like you know, like the the larger picture is withheld. Um, and so, in terms of like writing the long poem, I need the larger space in order to build. Um, the bits that I am willing to give. Whereas like if it were just, if I were writing in, in short poem forms, um, I just don't think it would have the same impact, make the same impact. Yeah, um, that, that makes sense to me. I, I see the opposites there. Do you, do you, um, uh, one of the minimalist long poem writers who I admire is Phyllis Webb with her naked poems. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think tr sometimes, uh, having that long poem form and just having the space to um, exactly to, yeah to think think and dwell about the other side the maximalism I, I call it the horror vacue school of uh, writing you know like like sort of like wanting to fit everything in in some ways there's an accumulate a mesmerizing accumulatory thing about what Kinesia does uh, also um, I would say Sandra Ridley also is a minimalist um, uh, uh, long poem writer as well or sequence poem writer as well but I, I like to I like those incantatory uh, I like writing those long lists I, I listening you to I work with a long line often I've noticed yeah. in your work right like just fun to uh, to to do these things 
and uh, so uh, because I'm interviewing Dennis Cooley uh, next in, in November, I've been reading uh, a lot of his work. He's uh, someone who writes both in the long poem and the sort of poem sequence format a lot. Mm -hmm. And a lot of lyric stuff as well within that form. But uh, in, in, in a, his interview with Jonathan uh, Bacon on the podcast, on, on Jonathan's podcast, he um, Jonathan asked him about something he called mining the site, which I guess uh, Dennis has taught creative. Well, he's taught English at, at, at in, in Manitoba for a long mm -hmm. time, and um, Jonathan was one of his students. And what what Dennis has said is, um, when you're when you're writing, you can you can mine the site. So basically, look at every possible angle of a of a subject, and just kind of that's what why some of why this these long poems end up happening is to look mm -hmm. at every. I don't I don't actually think I do that when I write. <laughs> I, I thought that's a really great idea. I should do that sometimes. I always have a specific perspective in mind when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. I was reading this. Uh, Fanny Howe brought out a new book. Of of, it's actually a book of excerpts in a way. It's a very interesting mm -hmm. format. It's, it's bits of writing that have that have been combined from all kinds of previous things that she wrote. But in the final uh, short essay, she talks about the spiraling poem, mm -hmm. and that, that is part of of what she sees as a long poem. And it really struck me because I was like, yes, I think there's something about you have an axis, and mm -hmm. your poem keeps spiraling around that because you know you keep adding to it but it keeps returning to that middle point too. And that was an that I really loved, yeah, and it really um, spoke to me. Oh, that's great. That's great. I was, I was, I with sessions from the Dreamhouse Aria, which you mentioned, which, which is supposed to be a novella in, in, in sort of a poetry novella. It's kind of a hybrid form. But um, I, I was reading a lot about exploring the narrative and the, you know how to explore the narrative. And there's this really great. It's on my shelf over there, but I can't quite, quite, quite see it uh, right now and it, it's but it's about the different structures of narrative including like instead of just having chronological it talks about a spiral structure for oh instance. interesting yeah it's a really great book which i've read the first two pages of and already gotten excited and stopped reading immediately after that which happens to me sometimes it's like i'm sated enough and that, that i can go off and do things but yeah so the whole idea of of uh, the long poem and and the narrative and uh, ways of ways of uh, engaging for me I, with with just individual those one-off poems I just I always feel dissatisfied with myself if, if that's all it is and it, if that's all it amounts to it yet yeah, often I never it never ends up anywhere for me it just I just really like the challenge I've, I've often heard poets talk about you know they write poetry because they don't have time you know that they that they take they need the they need to like use the 10 minutes or the half an hour at their disposal to write something short yeah i've always just been so dissatisfied with that with that mode um of course while respecting others there's this necessity to do that but i personally just always felt that i wanted the challenge of something larger i i wasn't satisfied with with those with those 10 minutes i wanted it to be difficult <laughs> for me uh, yeah I mean, I find it funny when people talk about writing a poem as, as if it's only just sitting in front of a, a writing space and writing. I'm always writing a writing a poem, like a, a writing something to do with a poem. Like just this morning, I was I was looking at the the metal spoon in my in my teacup and wondering if it was adding anything to the taste of the tea. And I thought about the word, the metal of, of the spoon and the teacup. And that was already, that was a rhythm that got me started. And now it's gone, but I mean, it'll come back later at some point and turn into something. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it could totally return. No, I mean, I feel like everything we do is like in some way impacting what we're going to be writing at some point, right? So, um, like when when someone asks like uh, uh, what are you like about writing? I always think of writing as more than just the the, the actual physical act. For me, writing and thinking, it's the same thing. Like it's always absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So okay, so uh, another question that we're back on 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 track. I don't mind. I love I love going off and and this is digressions like, are good. <laughs> The poems in both books revolve around a particular concept, whether it's a concept of the self and identity in Eke or the self as diminished by violence and abuse in Hellite flesh. Now I have to stop myself there because this morning I reread both books and there certainly is violence talked about in Eke as well. So I, I don't want to say that it's not there. It, it is there. So, um, so what is your process like in writing long poems with a general central theme? Uh, what about in deciding what to include? Are there poems that end up on the cutting room floor or do you just edit until they are right for the for what you're trying to do or what you've been doing? 
I feel like we already touched upon this in the previous. Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, I guess a little bit of both. Um, I think in terms of, um, you know, the poetry anthology, poetry collection, that is um, a collection of separate poems. There's so much more room for inclusion um, of, of separate poems in terms of juxtaposition. Yeah. You, know, you, can, you can put poems side by side to great effect, um, even if they're not 100% um, thematically in sync or that kind of thing. And so Eke, um, it was partially the case in Eke because it was a sequence of, it is a sequence yeah. of longer poems. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, I can, sure, there is a cohesion to the, to the book as a, as a whole, but also there's a poem about Las Meninas, um, yes. a painting by Pablo Picasso or a series of paintings by Picasso and a painting by uh, Diego Velasquez. And then there are other poems about South African landscape, you know, and, and so, so there is like a juxtaposition that maybe creates a different conversation, but um, this, there is a certain element of freedom in, in that, um, in, in, in being able to collect, collect those works, despite the fact that they're maybe not all on the exact same uh, subject matter. I think initially for Aka, I wrote 10 long poems and two of them were cut. Um, and one of them was very dramatically rewritten towards the end of the process. Um, and then for Halite Flesh, it was very different due to the narrative. Um, and I mean, the, <clears throat> the narrative, <clears throat> sorry, the narrative of Halite Flesh is obviously extremely light, um, but still there's a narrative. And for a poet to be working with narrative, it, it's a whole different skill set. Like I'm, I'm always joking that I found it really difficult to let anything happen. You know, I, oh, yeah. like, how, how do you get a, how do you get a character to move from one room to the next? Like that's, that's, that's a skill set that novelists have, but yeah. you know, poets, poet, my characters stay in their heads, you know, they don't really move around. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a narrative dictates its own terms. And so there's a lot that I had to cut, um, from the final manuscript just because um, it didn't fit the frame of the book. Um, and some, you know, it was, it's, quite, it's quite hard sometimes because you have to cut parts that, that you love, that I loved, um, and maybe you can repurpose it for something else. But most often I found that, that due to the nature of the book and the narrative nature of the book, it didn't, like those parts that I had to cut didn't really uh, stand, stand alone. And so they're just, you know, they're somewhere in the ether. <laughs> they're, in your, they're in a file folder, just, just sitting there and not open since whatever, whatever the month was that you've... Made. I actually opened them uh, in preparation for, for, you know, our talk here today. Oh, okay. And I was actually surprised at how I didn't like them very much, <laughs> which, was, <laughs> which was actually quite a positive uh, experience because I think I had the sense of like, oh, you know, I cut so many wonderful parts. And then I went back to them and I was like, oh no, I'm very happy with how Halite Flesh came together, even with those parts missing. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I know there's this, this, when you reread something, sometimes it, it can be weirdly odd how it's like, why did I think this was, <laughs> well, it happens. So, so how did Halite Flesh begin for you? If it did it, if it began in a poem, when do you, do you realize it was more than a poem? Yeah, um, as I said earlier, Halite Flesh probably started with a title, um, yeah. but more specifically in terms of, of the content, I have a very vivid memory of being in transit to South Africa, and I, it was in 2015, I remember that specifically, and I was I'd had a long layover in Munich um, in Germany. This often happens, it's kind of like a, it's an overnight flight to Europe, then a day-long layover in, during which I usually go into whichever city I landed in. And, um, and then a second, uh, a second um, you know, night, night long um, flight to South Africa. Anyway, I was in, I was in Munich and I, very, I remember specifically writing down um, a short poem um, in my notebook. And then, and it was this extremely iconographic scene. I remember this specifically that um, had the father figure whose name is Maria in the book. Yeah. Um, and, and he was already called Maria um, and having him 
holding a child, holding um, the little daughter in a very kind of iconographic religious portraiture kind of way, you know, like a mother and child kind of image. Um, and I mean, this got cut um, and it's in that same document I just mentioned. <laughs> um, but that, that, was, that was the kernel. And I was in South Africa for, I think, two months with my partner, uh, Dean Garlic. And, um, and I, re I remember, like, I kept writing, I kept writing it on this text and um, very much starting with, with this fact of Mar Maria as a father. And, and I don't know if you picked up on it, but I mean, the name Maria for a man is not a common thing. You know, it's not, not in South Africa. Anyway, so it was it was a strange decision for me to to, yeah. to keep at that. I had um, to reread. Actually, I, I had to like I had I had read the first few when, when I, my first reading, I had and I, I didn't know that Maria was was I, I automatically assumed Maria was was a woman, and uh -huh. then I had to reread like you know go back like on the second page. I even like it even because when I'm reading sometimes when I start I don't necessarily take things in very well, uh -huh. and I had to reread the first few pages like when I got into it so I just went back and which I like I like that sort of uh, it was also part of the play of the gender in the, in the exactly play. I think yeah I mean I think it was one of those kind of intuitive choices that I made on the spot and never questioned for the rest of the book um and and you know um Jim Johnstone my editor he he didn't question it either but if he had questioned it I would have fought heavily for that choice to remain mm. Um, but it's one of those ambiguous choices, which does, I, I think, really add to the book, just because it is such an extremely gendered book. Yes. Uh, you know, it's very much like men and women and, you know, what, what it means to be masculine and what it means in, in very stereotypical ways. Yeah. And like the, the kind of um, procreation of that, of, of those gender, gendered um, norms, I guess. And so within that framework to then have a, the, the male, the male, the father figure have a name, which is uncommon for, um, in heteronormative, um, you know, um, naming circumstances. I, I just like that. I like that as like a destabilizing force. Yeah. And it's good. And, the, and in, in French, uh, the word, uh, the name Marie is, is used by men too. Like Voltaire's name is François Marie Avray de Voltaire, you know, and it is like, common in Europe. I've noticed that. Yeah. So, well, because that figure, I think, I don't know. I wonder why, I wonder if it is because of the, um, um, I dare I say idolatry of, of, uh, Mary, you know, in, in yeah. the Catholic religion. Um, I wonder, I don't know whether, yeah. whether it has some, now I want to look up the etymology of that, of that word. And for me, you know, it's, uh, the thing about, cause I have synesthesia. So for me, the, uh, the name M Maria and Marie, they are purple. They're like Francis Bacon. Oh, interesting. Oh. So it's, and purple is a bruise color. So it kind of worked, they worked, oh, wow. the name worked for me on a lot of levels and, mm -hmm. and, uh, I, and also, it's, it seems like an an artist would have. Uh, that's the sort of name an artist might have, you know. And I thought I, about, I tried pronouncing it. I tried pronouncing it too as Mariah or as, as Maria, just to see if I if I saw if it felt different to pronounce it. I often read people's work completely aloud when I'm when I'm reading and sort of things I did there. But uh, yeah, it's it, again, it's it's a good it's a good name anyway. So yeah, yeah actually, just. Um, I very deliberately, you know, like the first, in the very first page, um, I, I juxtapose the word, the name Maria with the pronoun he, right? I think I say, I say Maria's voice adopts a level frequency. He is enormous. Just to have that kind of disjunct. Yeah. And um, again, Jim, when he first read the manuscript, he told me that he, he just assumed that Maria was a woman. Um, and that, that somehow like he was the mother, um, that he was someone like he was, he was obviously like aware of a certain ambiguity going on there, but he kind of felt that Maria was maybe like a subsection of the mother's identity. Yeah. And the, you know, and I mean, that's fine. Like if the book includes that kind of ambiguity, um, I'm happy with that. Well, and what happens when you do things like that is, is that it encourages a close reading because it makes what happens with me is if I see something like that and then I've, I've missed the point. I can see later on that I've, I've missed the point and I've gone back. I'll go back. Go back. Yeah. And that's good. Like you don't have to like, it's okay to reread things. <laughs> we can do that. Totally. <laughs> so when did you realize that, 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 that poem was more, was more than a, was going to be more than a poem. That, that those things in that poem. 
it's funny i i think i just knew it from the start i mean i was i like this was in 2015 so at that point i think um it's funny how chronology works at that point eka had just been accepted for publication in 2018 mm -hmm. so you know this is weird staggering going on where i was like okay so i finished this manuscript for 2018 what am i going to do now um, and I, I was I was very aware of this fact that it was I wanted a new project to be working on. I wanted a new book project, and I think that the moment I started writing quite intensively in South Africa and just like going with that material, um, it just became clear that 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 this was going to be a book length poem. Um, as, and maybe especially after having experimented with a long poem form in Eka. Yeah. And wanting to push that even further and realizing that I really like this, this as a form. Um, I wrote the first or most of the material from the first section extremely fast um, and from hell. And then kind of had to take a step back and, you know, figure out what would happen next. I think because I did write so fast and so intuitively, um, the structure of the book was less well articulated at that point, at the starting point. Right. Um, and I think there was almost a year in between that I was just walking around, you know, wondering, like, how am I going to make this work? And um, and then starting to work again and and, and figuring it out. And um, so, yeah, to answer your question, I mean, I think it, it was an incremental process, but it was also just like very spontaneous and, it, and immediate. That's great. And that, that can be so great when that happens. Do you, when you're when you're uh, working on something, are you working on more because you're also doing your your you're, you're, you're doing your PhD as well. So maybe you're not working on other poetry projects at the same time. Uh, I guess you're working on your, on your PhD. Do you, do you work on multiple uh, projects at the same time, writing projects outside of your academic stuff? I, yeah, I have been making time for writing for sure. I, um, I actually quite out of the blue um, started collaborating, collaboratively writing a manuscript with uh, Kramer Mohammadi. Oh, great. Yeah, I saw that. Um, yeah, who is an amazing um, poet um, himself. And so we we're writing a trilingual manuscript between English, Farsi, and Afrikaans. It's going to be great. Um, so that's, that's very exciting. Um, and it's also the first time that I really wrote in such a collaborative way. Um, but again, in a similar mode, it, we, 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 we or I wrote extremely um, intensively for, for maybe six weeks. And now I'm kind of like, well, I, don't, I really just can't right now. And so I know that I'll return to the manuscript at some point, um, hopefully not too far in the future. But yeah, I'm working on that. I've also been working slowly um, on some other stuff, which is so early on that I shouldn't really be talking about it at all. <laughs> um, and work that also is kind of visual um, and which I'm hoping will kind of translate from a visual starting point into, into um, something more textual. But yeah, so I mean, I, ha I ha have been writing, I don't usually work on two book manuscripts at the same time, but um, there, there, there are definite overlaps, especially due to, as I said before, the kind of staggering of, of um, publishing. Yeah, that's right. You find out two years sort of down the line, these, and these days I understand. I, I know, I, I wouldn't know about that so much, but <laughs> that's, uh, so both Eke and Hillite Flesh engage with art, nature, and the body. Was, what is it about these three things that make you want to write about them? It's a giant question. <laughs> it's a giant question. Yeah, I know. I love them. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I would, I would start by, by maybe adding to your list of art, yeah. nature, and body by also adding language and place. Language and, yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, Eka and Halite Flesh are, at a glance, very uh, different. But I was also very struck when I was looking at them side by side at some point, yeah. how similar they are. Um, that they're both books that think through language and culture yeah. through place. Um, and that they think through place, through, you know, identity formation of landscape and physical body. And so all those, those keywords, you know, art, nature, body, yeah language, place, they all end up coming back into some kind of subjectivity, um, I guess. <laughs> um, I've also been thinking weirdly, like, 
we tend to really valorize what the author has to say about their own work. True. Uh, like me being here right now. But I've also been wondering like whether I'm kind of maybe the most dishonest interpreter of my own work in terms of you know, like how how what I what I bring to thinking about about my writing is so channeled through the way I think or the way that I'm trained to think as as a student or as an academic in a hopeful academic um, and how I'm like able to like articulate my book in all these different kind of ways. Whereas like it, like when are you, when you're really trying to think like, where are all these things coming from? Why am I writing about art? Why am I writing about place? Why? Like there, there are levels that, you know, don't always want the, don't want to be articulated. Mm. Um, and that sometimes those levels are so um, personal that they almost become insignificant or, or that's how it feels. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it's strange. Like I, I feel like I could talk about it, but I'm also not sure how valuable that would be. <laughs> is, yeah, and is it just pure curiosity? On my, well, I mean, once you start to see things recurring, then you become interested as, as a, at least I as a reader become interested in in how that affects the work itself and, and how it sort of, I mean, it, it is interesting when things re recur. I mean, I almost, I mean, the one thing I always, want to ask a lot of people who write in a very visual way or even a very a way that includes the senses is you know i always want to ask them, well do you are you also an artist like do you do you make art or, or you know right. it, it's just i guess knowing a little bit more about the context of work giving it does tend to enrich the work in some way but the work also stands on its own so you know you can and then once it engages with the reader and the reader's experiences and interests and like some one reader will notice uh, something that another reader might not have depending on their own interests. I, I find reviews to be interesting from that point of view the things that people uh, um, pick up on or, or 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 find that maybe had nothing to do what with what the the writer had in mind mm -hmm. and I mean, it's a bit nerve-wracking to write the review because you don't know. Um, I mean, the person could have set, figured out some things that you never, or just come up with something that had nothing to do with anything to do with what you had in mind. But at that point, you, I, I figure once something is out there in the world, you let it, it go. just adds to it, right? right? It adds to yeah. it. Every person's mind reading the book just adds to what what it what it can do. So you rather not elaborate on art, nature, and the body in your in your. No, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I could I could elaborate on those three uh, keywords just in terms of you know I I guess to a very much smaller degree than to which I am a writer um, I I do like making art occasionally yeah um, and that that usually also happens in spurts for example the the images that are in Hellite Flesh. Um, and um, I'm currently kind of in a spurt again, um, and I've been producing some some visual images um, based on photographs, kind of erasing erasing elements of photographs and playing with that. Um, so yeah, and and my mother is an artist, and so like there's a lot of art in my life. Like, many of my friends are artists, um, and um, I absolutely love art. So I think I'm I'm just very very you know. It's just it's it's just like a, it's a it's a deep part of me that I that I find that I'm kind of unable to to step away from or um, that always just kind of returns to what I'm writing about. And then in terms of um, nature or or you know landscape, um, as you know, I, I I was born in Montreal. I grew up in South Africa, yeah. and um, I'm back here now. And I think I just had this extreme love for the South African landscape. Um, and then also a lack because I am not there. And, um, and so I think it, it, it just, it's the South African landscape is a huge presence in the country there. And yeah. so in, in my own nostalgia for, for a country in which I'm not currently living for most of the year, um, that imagination like seeps into my writing. I mean, this is all kind of like subliminal things, right? That like, yeah. who, who, who forms who I am and why does that end up like surfacing um, in, in, in whatever I'm writing. Um, and then the body, of course, we all live in our bodies. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the physicality of that is just so present. 
sometimes too though with a body i mean there there have been times in my own writing where i've kind of i've lived more in my head you know like i'm becoming yeah. someone who writes more of the body as i'm aging i find certain things are inevitable to have to discuss but uh there was a time where i i think i would say i, I didn't write anything to do with the body really so um, i think i find it really difficult um having a body <laughs> it is and, yeah it's incredibly <laughs> difficult and so um yeah it's in the forefront of of, of my thinking I, I guess that's it and, and yeah and there's uh, there's a lot of great uh, writers who do like m one of my favorite uh, writers who writes on the body is Nathaniel I guess and uh, ever since reading Jean Nathaniel I have been mm -hmm. enamored of that way of writing and uh, writing in this sort of a hybrid mode to l'entre genre and stuff like that. So, again, a tangent, but very sharp intellect. Yeah, yeah really wonderful stuff. Um, so you've chosen to broach the subject of the normalization and acceptance of abuse through an invented family where the abuser is an artist and the speaker is a boy on the cusp of adulthood. What made you decide to address the subject of abuse this way? And what was the thinking behind making the speaker or the, the, the narrator or the person, mm -hmm. the main character? a boy yeah um so yeah first of all this is an entirely made up family um and i have never been subjected to any kind of physical violence as a child um but i did grow up in a community where corporal punishment was and probably still is accepted um and it was very much part of my friends experience growing up and you know even if you're if you're not part of that experience in a first-hand way, but you're living in close proximity to it, um, you, you, you pick it up. You pick up the fear, you pick up the, the power dynamics, you pick up the, even a curiosity, you know, what, what is this, what is going on? Why are, why are my friends going through this? Or what is this? What is the logic behind this? Mm -hmm. And even like into my teens, you know, like hanging out with boys who maybe I'm interested in or whatever, or maybe mm -hmm. we're interested in just other and like having them like these horny guys <laughs> who are like, you know, simultaneously, simultaneously subjected to this kind of violence in their homes. It's a very strange, like it, it like mm -hmm. the strangest is even amplified when you think of adolescence and like the, the formation, like, like very specific formation of, of adolescence and a kind of like a, a um, very disjunctive relationship between um, maturity and, and becoming and dependence um, and, uh, and being um, still standing underneath someone who has, who has authority over you. you know? the power. There's a power there. There's a very real power dynamic there. Um, so I think it was just all very present um, as a as a person growing up in this, these kind of communities, um, and I think I always kind of imagined that I might write about this somehow when I was older. I don't know. I made that assumption for myself that uh, I would write do it when I was older. And you can't really choose when you want to write about something, I guess. And like when it is when it is in your mind, then you have to end up just doing it. So so you know, I I went <laughs> I went for it. Um, <laughs> I do want to talk about the word abuse, um, which I do find to be contentious because it includes judgment. Um, and I think I'm working with, with violence as a fact um, rather than, than, than something that's morally, that has any kind of moral judgment attached to it. Um, and by saying this, I am not condoning it. Um, you know, I'm not trying to, I, I'm, I'm definitely not, um, you know, for the kind of situation that I'm describing in the book, but I also realize that there are communities in which the normalization of corporal punishment and this kind of violence is accepted and not questioned and not judged. And in fact, this is an extremely strange warping of logic during which in certain communities, certain kinds of violence are accepted as part of care. Yeah, in, like, that, in that case, they are consensual, right? Not, they're, they're exactly, it's supposedly consensual. consensual. Yes, exactly. In my opinion, but it, it, no it, it, it's, it's an extreme form of discipline, right? It's like, yeah. you know, you're supposed, like a parent is, is I mean, these are, I don't have a child and, and you know, I, I don't, um, necessarily know anything about discipline but i guess 
there, there are arguments to be made that you're supposed to, you know, instill certain values into your children. And that like, when it comes to punishment, then that um, it is the responsibility of the parent to do that even. And that, and so like within, within a structure in which this kind of physical violence is accepted, it is also seen as good if that is, if that is enacted and that the lack of it would be the problem. And so it's like, I, I, it's, there's a normalization of the violence through ritual, which I find really, really fascinating. And, which yeah. I, and I think that's what I'm really like wondering about in this book. It's like, what happens when, when the logic becomes so strange that, um, you know, hurting someone becomes a form of care. And like, I think that's like pretty much the starting point of this book. And then in, in like a much larger, I mean, like the book is kind of granular, right? It's like this very specific relationship between the father and, and, and his son, but like on a much larger scale, like if that is the kind of um, logic that's taking place, um, how does that influence, for example, the creation of patriarchy and the way, you know, like if, if that is like the mode in which one thinks in which hurting is a form of care, how does that play out on a much larger scale um, in, in you know, valorizing things like hardness, emotional, emotionlessness, you know, those kind of um, core um, masculinist um, traits, I guess. Well, yeah, and at the end of the book, you have, you have, um, you have the main character talking about that, talking about how, how he's inherited this violence and how he will go on to be violent himself. And exactly yeah. where that is valued. So yeah, no, that was, that was a great, and actually I, I have a, a little quote from, um, from Eke that is why I, 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 I reminded myself that the book also contains, uh, you know, it does um, have mm -hmm. a, a, a violence in, in, as part of the engagement. And it's from uh, the, convey the no, section five conveyor belt. The repertory cinema of violence casually credits everyone at the ending. Oh, interesting. And then you talk about masculinity too on the, on the next oh, page. It was there in the, the, there, you know, the thread of it was there in both books. So, so. It was there all along. Yeah. <laughs> along. Yeah, yeah. But I just, I think there was one more part to your, to your question that you asked me why, yeah. um, why. I'm making it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think, in any case, in the kind of, again, like just, you know, um, thinking in terms of, of cultural proximity in, 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 in what I know, it, it's corporal punishment is always very gendered. And yeah. um, stereotypical terms, again, girls have, should be soft, they should be gentle, right? And they also start menstruating pretty early on, so at which point they're women, and at which point you cannot hit a woman. It's a very different logic from, from boys who are supposed to be hard. Right. Um, and so... And like there is almost like their childhood is prolonged through through that into their into their teens, and so there's like there's like this enculturated hardness, emotional emotionlessness, which then gets passed on from father to son through through traditions of violence. And so my the the choice of of having a boy was very much um, based on that whole kind of trajectory. Um, and of course, then I have like there is like the figure of of the kid, um, she doesn't have a name, but like the little girl who I think is kind of like positioned as marginal to that um, yeah. that violence i guess yeah and the thing about that is that there yeah i i was very interested by the, in the dynamic with the with the three because there's the, the other the other brother as well right. Ross, i don't know how yeah yeah and uh, i found it interesting to see um also as part of the normalization and acceptance you have the kid knowing about the violence too, and you have Joe knowing about, and he's involved too, and the mother knowing about the violence, and her canvases all have cracks in them. You know, I, I, the whole thing is a, it has a kind of a, I dare I use the word gothic feel to it. And so oh, interesting. Yeah. So I thought that was, I thought that was very well done. Yeah, I, and I mean, it is interesting because your first book. I mean, the I is 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 Clara. It's it's you, you know. And then here we have uh, the boy, and and the, the things change. I mean, he's a, he's a teenager, I think, in the book. But yeah. some of the parts, like the the essay parts, it reads more like someone who's older. But he has a wisdom, I think, from his life that he's he's going through. So uh, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of layers in that book. There really are. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the voice does shift throughout the book. I, I think maybe there's, there are substantial sections that are definitely in the main character, the teenage boy's voice. Yeah, and then, then there's a certain section that I deliberately actually put in the father, in Maria's voice. Yeah, he's there. Um, just because I wanted to make him into a person too. There was like a different, there was this, definitely a stage when I realized, oh, wow, you know, I have this father figure, but he's not a person. He, he isn't ever allowed to say anything from his own perspective. And I didn't want him to be this like one, one dimensional character either. And so there is a section that, that is from his perspective. And then there are the more essayistic parts, which I guess arguably could be me um, or, or more my, my voice seeping through. But, um, or the narrator or, you know, or, or just kind of an abstract voice. Um, but um, as you say, it's not it's not as clear cut of a conflation between between the speaking eye and 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 me as a poet, um, as an echo. That's it, which is also fascinating too. I mean, there's a lot. I realize that even with these questions, I have a lot more notes that like I we could have talked about as well. But you know, we'd be here for days. We never stop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At some point, you have to you have to have another cup of tea and just go on. <laughs> So I've noticed that because of the pandemic, you've arranged for, well, I don't know, I assume it's because of the pandemic. It could be for other reasons, too. You've arranged for outdoor, physically distanced readings of the book with fellow poets. Can you talk about that experience? And also, uh, just to see, how does it fit with your work of deep curation? And if you could talk a little bit more about that. I wish I, I love, you know, as you know, I'm a fan of that mm -hmm. concept and what you've done. Yeah, thank you for asking about that. Um, yeah, so just a very, very quick summary. I, um, I started working on, on a way of organizing literary events, which I've been calling deep curation, um, I think in 2018. And so um, just very, very briefly, it's, it's a practice in which I, as the curator, um, kind of create a script recombining works by, um, by the poets I've invited to participate. And so I kind of script... I, I, I script um, work like with, I, I use poets work to script a new, a new cohesive whole um, in a way to kind of create um, a thematic and a, and a maybe even a um, intellectual kind of theoretical thread going, going throughout the event as a whole. So it's like, it's thinking about, you know, how, how you can um, experience poetry within a context and, and how you can frame poetry in performance. Um, and just be a little bit more intentional about like the poetry reading as a performance venue. And so with like a couple of years of thinking about this stuff, I guess when COVID hit um, and I realized that, that my, that Hellite Flesh would be launched um, during a global pandemic um, during which we can't have, you know, um, in-person events, I did over the summer end up organizing three six person um, poetry readings in a park, which, which worked really well um, because we were able to, you know, distance and sit very far apart, and um, it was still intimate, intimate enough, um, or it, it was just extremely intimate because of the six, the six people thing. Um, and it was just really great, actually, because I saw photos on Facebook of you all sitting on the lawn, and it was just in the sun, and it, I, it made me happy to see you anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really great because like similar to deep curation, like these conversations really like engaged with the work. It just really felt like people were there. They were going to talk about, about how I flesh. We were going to, you know, I had some talking points um, prepared and um, like the most wonderful in-depth conversations came out of, the, of those, you know, um, uh, collective thinking through <laughs> of the book. Um, and um, it, in a way, I kind of saw it almost as workshopping for me, yeah. like how, how, what people see in the book and how I, I can end up talking about my own book. It was actually a very meaningful um, experience. And so even though it was necessitated by COVID, I think it's like a, for, a form that I might actually love to do again at some point in the future, just because it felt so so sustained so like satisfactory and just in terms of the um the depth of of conversation that ensued what are some of the do you remember any anything in particular that stood out like some of the things people brought up when talking about the book 
Well, I kind of framed, um, I, fr I, the, I had a similar frame for each of the three readings, but because there were different people in each, the conversation ended up like, you know, <laughs> refracting in different directions. But I, I, I had three main parts. And for each part, I would read a small section of, of Highlight Flesh. Uh, and then I would have kind of like a talking point. And they were basically around violence, the first one. Then it was about the kind of essayistic parts about art and how those two things kind of come up together. And then the third one was about beauty mm. and uh, the responsibility of aestheticizing um, violence in poetry. Right. Um, and sounds really fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I think what, what it's hard to really synthesize into like one thing that really stood out, but maybe the difference stood out, you know, like, like that we had the, like the three events had the same frame, but ended up going in so many different directions. And um, I actually would really like to write something about that experience and like maybe like incorporate parts from, from the different, um, the different conversations and like think about how the interpretations varied. Well, I hope you do write about it. I also think I might, I might, if, if should a book of mine ever become published again. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it will. Well, you know, they're sitting at the bottom of, of the publisher's slush piles, whatever. But uh, <laughs> there are at least 10 manuscripts that are just waiting to go out. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I would think it would be something I'd like to do. Like, I, I think it would just be fantastic to sit with people in, uh, you know, in a pub or wherever. And, and I mean, it's extremely generous from the side right. of the people who attend, right? Because Absolutely. they have, they're participating, they're like engaging with your work. And it's very humbling in a certain way too, because it's like these people came together to talk about my work for an hour and some of them went longer, you know, some of them went for two hours. Right. Um, and so it's very, very generous, but then, this, and then, but then you also just gain so much from that experience. I think it's very worthwhile. Sounds good. And I, I know you had um, just had on, on Spoken Web, you just had a talk about uh, deep curation, I think, too, which I haven't listened to because I, I again this time of year, there's so many and, and, and with the pandemic, with everything happening virtually, too, there's so many good things to attend and to listen to. The problem is I'm too busy and I said a lot of people are too busy to do it now. But the nice thing about Spoken Web is a, a great podcast and uh, you can go back and listen to it. And I will exactly. go back. That's the nice thing about the podcast form, right? You can re you can return. So, yeah, the, I, did, I did produce a podcast episode about um, about the development of, of deep curation as a, as a curatorial practice. So I'll put the I'll put make sure to include that link as well when I I say I, I oh, my joke you. I often make is that I, I say I'm going to include links and then I don't do it when I in the show show notes but I actually have been better about doing that so I will put that in into the uh, into the link section. Amazing, thanks. Are you going to be doing any readings in the next while? We should also uh, put links to in the. Um, I did a number of readings already, so I feel like I'm kind of I'm, I'm going into a slower period now. Um, but I do have I do have a reading coming up um, at the lawn, lawn Chair Soiree, which is organized oh, by yeah. Jim Jurgensen, and it's on the 19th of November um, at 7 p.m. And I can send you the link for that. Oh, that would be great. And I'm kind of I, I really want to host uh, an event that's earlier in the day because everything I've done so far has been at 7 p.m. <laughs> and um, with a, with a time difference, actually, you know, my family in South Africa and my friends, my yeah. friends there and also in Europe, they can't attend. So I really want to try and organize something earlier in the day that, you know, like a lunchtime kind of thing in Canada, but which would end up being an evening thing um, in South Africa and in Europe. That's a good idea. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to make it work. So um, I just don't have the details for it yet. Okay, well, we'll, we'll let's stay tuned. I, I, I wish and I understand the point of um, sometimes only having an event uh, just shown during, you know, live and then not, not keeping it as a recording. But, but I think for that reason, even for that reason alone, that people are not able to, in different time zones, access these events. Or for those of us who are fast asleep very early in the evening, it would be nice just to, just to have, and I know it's not easy to keep things in archives always. And it, mm -hmm. it, you know, we you can't always. It's expensive sometimes to maintain those archives. But I would, I really wish I, I, for a lot of these readings that we just we were able to see them uh, later. And I know I won't look at all of them, but I was looking at a Facebook Live event uh, that you uh, did for the Resonance Cafe just just this morning. So. <laughs> 
Oh, that's an, oh, funny. <laughs> it's nice to see that as well. And that was June when you were, we were still figuring out too. doing that was, things. that was the first online event I've ever done. And I think yeah. I, I remember having a terrible experience. Like, you know, I, there's someone who came in suddenly and said, am I, am I on? And it's like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, no, we were all figuring it out. But what was funny about that particular one too, because it was on Facebook live, but we were all in different places, you know, and it was just, it was, Technologically, it was difficult to to handle because you know no one no one had control over everyone's technology. We we're all kind of like floating in our own little. <laughs> That's it. And <laughs> I've seen some interesting things too during these Zoom readings. Like I, I watched um, I watched an interview with um, with um, Robert Croach and Nathan Duet. No, sorry, what am I talking about? Robert Croach. No, he he died. <laughs> sorry, with Dennis Cooley and Nathan Duet. But I was thinking about Robert Croach because he's involved in a lot of the thoughts of. Dennis Cooley's work too, but anyway, and and, and Nathan's uh, children came on to that, like they they came in to see their dad, you know, their little toddlers, and so that was kind of cute. I mean, there are these moments like this: people's cats walking in all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. At first, I, I was sort of uncomfortable with with the fact that it, the, the sort of life comes in, but now I actually appreciate it because not being able to see people in person uh, as much. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I like these evidence of, of, of humanity and in, yeah, that's true. in our lives. So I find, I find them very tender to see. I always think of the, also kind of towards the beginning of the online events, um, maybe in March or April, Alexi Perry Cox did, did one, did, did an event and she created this video, which was actually pre-recorded, but it was like of her having just taken a shower and she had her <laughs> towel kind of like on her head and she had her baby who she was feeding. And so it was this like extremely intimate video and she was on the, with her one hand, she was reading this, her, her poetry and on the other hand, she was like feeding her kid, you know? <laughs> so it was like exactly what you're saying, this extreme glimpse into someone else's um, intimate life. Yeah. And, and and that's the reality that we have now too is that that um, you know we can't just stop doing the things we have to do in order to no. you know, they do a poetry reading or whatever it's been especially you know that's been an issue now and with the pandemic like people can't mm -hmm. they have to take care of their children they have to do other things and so yeah it's, it's good to see evidence of that like we let's not forget that because I mean if this if, if this ever ends this time you know we'll 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 have things we need to remember about it so no that's true remember is there anything else you'd like to add about uh, anything other that you'd like to say i mean we could we could just keep talking you know <laughs> i feel like um there are there are definitely many more things i would like to say and like one conversation that that i keep wanting to come back to is just like language i think yeah. particularly because um because I have written multilingually before, and these days I actually also write in Afrikaans, and so, um, so the fact that I wrote this book in English um, is something that that I think about. Um, but I don't, I don't think that we need to get into it. I just wanted to put it up, put it out there as like the fact that it's written in English is something which I think is maybe um, noteworthy within the larger oeuvre. Um, yeah, and then apart from that, I just wanted to say, to thank you, of course, for um, for your very thoughtful questions and uh, for hosting me. Well, I, I'm glad you and the, you're the first person we've had uh, that I, I'm having back on the show. So you're, you know, so you're the first time. For the most part, I've I've just, you know, had had new people I haven't had on the show before. So there you go. This is now a precedent I've set that I will have uh, people returning to the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, like when we when we spoke last in 2017, that was about my chapbook Wax Lyrical. So yeah, so that's I'm a long way. <laughs> that's right. I would. Yeah, we 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 could. I mean, again, what's changed for me about doing this podcast is that um, it was something I would only. Uh, do interviews with people in person. I didn't want to engage with, I wasn't planning on learning how to do any kind of distant, uh, but you know, it's really opened up in a lot of ways. Like I do prefer having people here in, or wherever in a pub or wherever and, and talking uh, in, in person. But this has been like, it's been a great experience to be able to talk to people that are not in my living room and not necessarily coming to Ottawa. So, but it's, it's kind of opened up so many possibilities uh, with people who kindly agreed to to do the show that um, I don't even I feel almost like I could just do the podcast and nothing else like I'm trying in November I have three I have three 
Oh, wow. That's a lot of work. Yeah, so it's a lot. It's all interesting stuff. And I can't, I'm having a hard time, like, not wanting to, like, do that. I have so many other things going on that are also really interesting. So, so. Yeah, in your own writing. (laughs) Well, that that sort of comes that there's no that sort of is going on more in my head these days than it is on paper. So that's okay too. That, mm-hmm. that happens. I just wanted to to I, I like to um, talk about the book and and praise the book at the end of the of the of this. I usually do that. So I, I will say this about uh, the book: Hell Light Flesh is a chilling and powerful critique of the normalization and acceptance of violence through the eyes of a young man on the cusp of adulthood in a family where both parents are artists. The mother, a sculptor whose canvases are always cracked. The father, a confident creator of the eternal work. It is an achingly beautiful series of long poems that engage with art, nature, and the body, the self-violence, toxic masculinity, paternalism, and the patriarchy. The book is both thoughtful and visceral. For me, I couldn't help thinking of male artists who've been seen as geniuses and how they are empowered and enabled to be inappropriate and awful to those around them. As someone who has experienced childhood trauma due to abuse by a father, the work was an uncomfortable, uncomfortable but necessary read. I recognize myself in those pages. That's, that's what I have to say about that book. And uh, thank you again. And uh, thanks to Clara Duplessis for being on the show, to Charles for processing, to Jennifer Peterson for help with the theme song, and to all of you for listening and sharing the episode. Stay tuned for the next episode with Sasha Archer, Pearl Peary and Dennis Cooley in November, Francis Boyle, and a special episode on the poetic elements of music in December featuring amazing musician Subraj Singh. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The small machine talks.